Let's begin. Getting late. Big day ahead of us. Sorry, I'm dropping so slow. Apologize to some other people. I'm in. Okay. So today we are back to our uh, letters of tradition. We are moving from Germany, where we were last. We do a quick review. We were in Germany in the yeshiva of Mainz. We talked about Rabbeinu Gershom or Hagola. Rabbeinu Gershom, the light of the exile, who was one of the the pillars of, I would say, Ashkenaz, of our Ashkenazic German tradition, one which we all in this room are uh, proud associates and, uh, and descendants of. Yeah. All right, some of us in this room. Now, what happened was, as we noted, that Rabbeinu Gershom marked the... the uh, shift from Babylonia, where the Talmud is, was concluded, to Europe. Rashi is the next, I guess, iteration in the journey from Germany going a little south to France. Rashi, who we, we've all encountered Rashi, Rashi of Shlomo Yitzchaki, although Rashi stands, is Rabbi Shin is Shlomo and Yid is Yitzchaki, otherwise known as Rabbi Shel Yisrael, also the same, the same uh, letters, because he is really our Rebbe. You can't learn Gemara without Rashi. You can't really learn Chumash without Rashi. Someone who spends enough time learning Gemara when they get to the tractates where Rashi has, didn't write on, automatically feel like there's something missing. I remember I, was, I opened up Masechah's Nazir once, and I never learned Nazir, and I start reading it, and within like five minutes, I'm like, something's off about this Rashi. It's just, this is not the Rebbe that I, who's been teaching me throughout Shas. And so I went and asked someone, like, yeah, yeah, this is probably his grandson, the Rivan, Rashi had a way with words of being very concise, of packing in there, of using sometimes one or two words, which can literally spawn entire universes. Literally, one, one word Rashi chose to use over another, and you realize Rashi is, not, is getting at something and driving at something far beyond, far, be, far beyond what you could ever imagine. So who, who is Rashi? A little bit about the milieu where Rashi came from. Rashi was born in France, in a town that's south, it's spelled Troyes, but I believe in French it's pronounced Trois. That, about the extent of my French knowledge. <laughs> Rashi was born in Troyes. He was born there. He was raised there. He died there. But he did not live there his entire life. At a certain point, he went to Germany to learn in the yeshiva of Mainz, otherwise known as Rabbeinu Gershom's yeshiva, although Rabbeinu Gershom had already passed away. He learned in Mainz for a few years, and then he went to Worms, another of the great yeshiva towns, another of the great uh, Jewish towns, where he was... It seemed like he was learning there, not necessarily in yeshiva. There's a bit of a... Uh, Debate exactly how long he was there. Some say he was there 10 years, some say he was there shorter. He was married at that point, he already had two or three kids, lived in abject poverty, and he literally just dedicated his time to learning, to learning, to studying, to learning the traditions of Germany. See, when, when Rashi grew up in France, France had nothing. Jewish life was centered in Germany, which means if you wanted, if you wanted to learn, you wanted to spend time learning yeshiva, or you had a question, a question came up, what do you do? You sent a letter to Germany. France was a it was a it was a, it was a new territory. Also, France is, was not the Fr France as we know it nowadays. France was a feudal system. Each section was its own little country, if you want to look at it that way. But most importantly, France was divided between northern France, which was Christian, and southern France, which was Muslim, and that was totally two total different experiences. Northern France being Christian under Christian rule. So again, as always, our relationship to the cross and our relationship to the crescent was always very different. Traditionally, the Muslims treated us much better. But 
It also was just totally different worldviews in terms of the orientation to philosophy, the orientation to learning, the relationship and to the secular and non-Jewish culture. Totally, totally, totally different worlds, which is why you can have people living within a, a couple, you know, hundred miles of each other, one Sephardi, one's Ashkenaz, two different ways of looking at the world, two different ways of approaching philosophy, two different ways of approaching, really, some of the main things of which we, what we look at, with the touch points, when we think of our Jewish life. So Rashi is born in France, he goes to Germany, and what happens is, is, is for a number of factors, once Rashi gets back to France, that essentially shifts the, the focal point of Jewish life to France. What starts to happen is not only do the French Jews no longer, and Rashi was only 30 years old, by the way, when he got, when he got back to France, not only do they no longer need to go to Germany to ask their questions, but you even start finding questions from Germany going to France. And a recognition of Rashi's character, Rashi's stature, and also, again, numerous other factors, including the Crusades, which kind of ended at German Jewry for a long time, the way we know it. Um, and also, the, in, in France, then, it wasn't just the Jew, a Jewish renaissance, but there was a, a general renaissance of society with, among the Christians that kind of re led to this intellectual milieu where people were learning and studying. And therefore, France became the central point, if you want to call it, I believe they call it the 12th century enlightenment. There was some sort of enlightenment. So that was French. Rashi lived, you asked Rashi, to remember, Rashi lived during recess. Rashi lived during recess, 1040 to 1105. That's when we always had break. Maybe 1041 to 1105. Sometimes the Rebbe went a little over. So that's when Rashi lived. What I want to look at today about Rashi, something Rashi really pioneered is, and really it's going to set the stage for a lot of what's to come, is that we as Jewish people have been through a lot. Oftentimes, when our host country became too favorable, we ended up intermarrying. Oftentimes, when our host country rejected us, we ended up intermarrying. Either it was out of choice, or because we kind of felt the pressure and we converted. We, we apostatized. And the question that really starts to emerge in the days of Rashi, a little bit of Rabinagarishim time also, and really takes away, and the literature continues and continues, all the way down to even nowadays, with chubas that are coming out nowadays from Rav Asher Weiss, and Rav Moshe Feinstein, and the Nish in the last 100 years, is how do we look at the apostate. How do we look at a Jew who does not live a halachic life, or in this matter, in this area, chooses to embrace a totally different worldview, a totally different religion? So what I want to do is today is set the stage for that, which is going to be a reoccurring theme over the next couple months, and look at a couple of gemaras and how the Talmud looks at someone who a mumar, someone who apostatized. And again, a comprehensive study. This could take days, but I want to look at a couple key points, and then see what Rashi's orientation and Rashi essentially is going to set the stage for what's going to come. So that being said, let's take a quick look. One is just a quick note, not on the source sheets, is that when we talk about someone who apostatizes or someone who walks away from religion, the Gemara already has a chilek. The Gemara has a differentiation between someone who does it, lahachis, versus someone who does it, The difference being, someone who, let's say, they, uh, they're very hungry, and there's a nice piece of pig in front of them, like, what can I do? I'm starving, they eat it, is very, very different than someone who says, I'm rejecting Torah's Moshe Rabbeinu. That I can eat the steak here, or I can eat this pig, I'm going to eat the pig just to show. I'm going to eat the pig because I'm rejecting. Very, very, totally very different, obviously you can imagine, there's totally different implications there. One person saying, I, I am making the decision because I want to, lahachis, purposely, show I no longer embrace something, whereas the other one saying, no, I'm just, I'm hungry. I, I, I grew up a certain way. I was raised a certain way. In the world I grew up in, no one went to yeshiva. This is what we did. So right in the Gemara has a distinction. However, the Gemara also talks about a mumar. 
in Mumra, in Shumas, people who walk away from Judaism. And also, one more note just to point out, especially in the Middle Ages and really until, you know, Spinoza came around, if you were not part of the Jewish people, you had to join a different group. There was no such thing in the Middle Ages of running around saying, I'm just a secular person. That didn't exist. Either you were a member of the church or you were a member of some sort of subgroup that was recognized by the church as an authentic or somewhat authentic community. Which means if you walked away from Judaism, you had to go to the church. Which is why the cheyrim, putting excommunicating someone was so potent. If you were kicked out of the community, you had to leave and enter another community. It wasn't until Spinoza came around and basically pioneered, again, because of what Amsterdam looked like when Spinoza lived, pioneered this idea that you can be a secular Jew. Someone who's totally secular and not joining another religion. So it says the Gemara. There's a couple of sources about how the Gemara, again, Starting point, someone who's a Meshumat, someone who apostatized, they join another religion. The Mara has a drush in Chul and That when it comes to bringing sacrifices, in the base of Midlis, as we talked about yesterday, the idea of bringing sacrifices, all parishes by Vayikra, a Mumar, someone who apostatized, is forbidden for bringing sacrifices. Meaning, if they walk into the temple and say, hey, today I want to bring a sacrifice, we say, sorry, you're not welcome here. We're not welcome here. Source number two. This is Gemara and Gidzin. This actually has ramifications nowadays. Omer of Nachman. If a min, a heretic, writes a Sefer Torah. If a heretic takes a quill and takes, a, take, takes the ink and writes Sefer Torah, we burn the Sefer Torah. That means there can be two Sefer Torah in this arm right here look exactly identical. Identical. Exactly, it's always identical. They look identical. One was written by a heretic and one was written by someone who was a believer. The one written by the believer, if it falls, we all freak out. We talk about fasting. Maybe that's why we freak out. Whereas the one written by the heretic, we burn. We literally burn. One minute. If a non-Jew writes it, we bury it. Why? Because, again, very important to understand, a Sefer Torah is more than just Letters written on a cloth, letters written on parchment, but it has to be written lishma. It has to be written with intention. What gives the Sefer Torah its kedusha, its holiness, its sanctity, is the fact that the, the author, the scribe, when he writes it, has in mind, "I am writing this Hashem. I'm writing this for the right reasons." So, if a non-Jew writes it, they don't have that intention in mind. They don't have the ability to have that intention in mind because they don't have the obligation to write it. So, we don't want people to get mixed up. So, we, we bury it, but respectfully. A heretic, we burn. A non-Jew, we bury. If a scroll is found in a non-Jew's house, so there's a machlokis. Some say, let's be honest, how many non-Jews can actually write a Sefer Torah? It probably came from, uh, from the Judaica stores, the Bermans, Eichlers, the new Eichlers. Um, so it's probably a fine, fine Sefer Torah where others say, no, you should still bury it. Actually, this happened, Halachal Maisa for me. My grandma's a realtor. And sometimes when she's cleaning out houses, especially after someone passes away, they basically, she, she knows if she wants the house to sell, she has to be the one to clean it out. So she called me up and she goes, I found they have a lot of sfarm. Do you want to come take a look? So I came to someone's house. They were not a religious person at all. And I found on a shelf a Sefer Torah. An actual Torah. An actual Torah. It was in very bad shape, but it was a Sefer Torah. So I went to her shechter and I said to him, well, what do I do? Can I assume this is authentic Sefer Torah? Or perhaps the guy wasn't religious. Maybe he was written by someone who was a man, a heretic. So Rav Shechter said to me, let's be honest, how many people know how to write Sefer Torahs? It was probably written by a Jew, and he, he, this person purchased it. 
Either way, it turns out it costs like $10,000 to restore it. So right now it's buried in some cemetery because I wasn't going to restore it. But that is, yeah. So the question is, does this heretic rule apply to somebody who contracted someone to do it, to write a safer Torah? No. So it has to, the actual person that put the quill to the... So that's where the Shema comes in. So if a heretic says, can you write a safer Torah for me to a rabbi that is good and can write safer Torah and commissions it, then it's still a kosher safer Torah. Yeah, that, that opens up other questions. Again, uh, and the Rambam, by the way, passes this way. The Rambam says, quote is Marv, verbatim, he says, again, I'm not what you think is a Torah, it's a custom min, you just throw a custom God, you know it's nimsa biyad min, you know it's nimsa biyad, God, I'm a little, you know it's a little carbo. That's actually, I, I copy and paste the same source. So the Rambam says the same thing. Ramosh has a chuba, what about someone who's not an Orthodox Jew? He, he discusses that as well. So this is, again, setting the stage, we're seeing the Torah, the, the Gemara has a very stringent view for those who for those who apostatize. Let's do, let's go a couple more, let's do one more source, and then we're going to broaden it a little bit. Because Marim Sachem, Tanner Bottom, Ben Necha Yochabo, Necher Mamish Tamalomer, Aro Lay, MK Matamalomer, Ben Necher, Shinitavo, Maisel, Abish, but mine, Ben Loella, Aro Lay, Aro Bosser, and I, Tamalomer, Vara Bosser. Says the Gemara. Says the Gemara. When it comes to bringing carbon Pesach, every Jew has an obligation to bring a carbon Pesach, Erev Pesach, if you are in the state of purity. Every Jew, except Someone who does not have a bris milah does not bring does not bring it again. There, there's a bit of a debate between Rabbi Town and Rashi. We're not going to get into that. Also, a non-Jew obviously does not bring a, does not bring a karm pesach. And says the Gemara, someone who is a mummer, someone who apostatized, also is not included in bringing the sefer Torah. So, what the question now that emerges from this that everyone has to grapple with is: so, how exactly are we looking at the mummer? Because it seems to be. We're essentially going through our, our life, the Jewish ritual life, going through the loft, and one after another essentially saying, sorry, you're not part of this. You can't write a Sefer Torah. You don't bring a carbon. You don't bring the carbon Pesach. You, and it's a whole host of things. So what are we essentially saying? A, someone who apostatized essentially has, has, we've revoked or they have chosen to revoke for themselves their status as a Jew. Perhaps what, what, what the Gemara are driving at is, we like to say, once a Jew, always a Jew. Well, it's not so simple. Maybe once a Jew, a Jew as long as you're a believer. Once you walk away and embrace a whole alien lifestyle, an alien belief system, you're no longer a Jew. And this is a view that is found, not by many, but is found. Comes along Rashi, and Rashi essentially puts his foot down and says, Yisrael afopishachotah, Yisrael have A Jew, even though he sins, is always a Jew. And because of Rashi's Stature. And because of who Rashi is, the Rabbin Shal Yisrael, no one afterwards ever disputed it. And that becomes the operative halacha going forward. Yisrael, Avapishachata, Yisrael, Have a Jew is always a Jew. Now, if you think about it for a moment, think of the ramifications otherwise. If you were to say you can revoke a Jewish status, what happens if a Jew who apostatized goes and he says to a woman, Hariat Mikudeshisli, you're now my wife? Well, if he's not considered a Jew, well, if a non Jew says to a Jew, you're my wife, it doesn't hold. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a condition. It's not a condition. So that would be very extreme. At the same point, what about rivis? The idea you're not allowed to charge interest. The compulsor says you can't charge interest to your brother. Brother. Well, if we're saying essentially you're not considered a brother, you've decided you've opted out. Your choice. We're a club. You opted out. So then maybe you can charge interest. And in fact, one of the balitosfos, who's Rashi's grandson, says that when we talk umuter likach mehem rivis. One could take charge interest to a non-Jew. 
Although you can't give ribbis to a to a to a, a Jew who apostatized because you still are bound by not giving interest to a Jew, you could charge interest to him because you're not you're not obligated to support him. He's not considered your achif, he's not considered your brother in this area. So there are sorts of formulations going out in the Middle Ages about maybe perhaps in a way we've revoked your Jewish status. In fact, it even goes the other way around. What happens when he wants to come back? Professor Chaim, Professor Canterfogel, uh, we'll meet on the next page, he wrote a book where he went through lots of interesting manuscripts where he found Jews who wanted to return, they made them go to the mikvah, they made them do all sorts, a whole elaborate process, almost sounded like they made them do a mini-conversion, saying, welcome back. Now, he wants to speculate, perhaps some of it was more, we're trying to deter people from going away, so we try to make it harder in a way to come back. But the point is, how far do you take this? How far do you say once you walk away, you, you, you become a Christian, and you, you walk like a Christian, so now you've, uh, you've walked away. And Rashi says, Yisrael Afapishachata, Yisrael have it. Once a Jew, always a Jew, you can't walk away, you can't charge them interest, you can't, and although there are going to be certain areas, Rashi's not going to say, now the Sefer Torah is a good Sefer Torah. But Rashi's going to say there's a difference between rituals, which need to have a certain intention when you make them, versus the status of the individual which I think makes a lot of sense. You could say to someone, you're a very fine, upstanding person, but I'm not going to necessarily eat in your kitchen because you don't know the laws of kashras, and perhaps you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to mix up your milk and meat. But it's very different, different than implicating them and saying, you're not considered a Jew, you're, you're not a Jew. Yeah? Shouldn't you argue that same thing with regards to Torah? I mean, this is the book that we're supposed to be following word for word and letter for letter. So if the if apostate is the one writing it, especially in times before we had computers checking them for every little letter and, and uh, mark, maybe there's a mistake. Maybe there's, or, or not so, or an intentional mistake. Right, exactly. So I, I believe so Rashi... the Gemara be getting at that we don't trust people to be writing our Sefer Torah? So Rashi is going to say that. Rashi is going to say that, and again, Rashi is again interpreting Gemara that way. It's not like Rashi saying, I decided, I woke up one day, I don't like this, I'm walking away, I'm changing things. Rashi didn't do that. Rashi is inter interpreting the Gemara, and the Gemara says, a heretic, and men who write Sefer Torah, the problem is, again, I think it's not we're afraid to add something in, as much as it takes a certain intentionality, a certain kavana, to write Sefer Torah, and he doesn't have it. But yeah, Rashi is reinterpreting the Gemara. Like, what, what did Rashi, what was Rashi, what's Rashi most famous for? We kind of neglect to mention it. Rashi writes the side of the Gemara. Where did Rashi get this from? How did Rashi know how to do this? So Rashi, actually, it's very interesting. When Tosfos writes on the side of the Gemara, Rashi's grandchildren write the side of the Gemara, they're essentially what their contention always is, and their intent always is, the Gemara is one unified book, and therefore when there's a stira, when there's a contradiction between two texts, the Gemara of says one thing, of Zara says one thing, the Gemara of Bo says something else, what Tosfos' job is essentially is to say, well, let's figure out, why is there a, a mistake? Why is there a stira? Why is there a, why is there a, a debate? Why does it look like there's a contradiction? And what Tosfos is then going to do is try to say, oh, you think these two Gemaras look the same? Well, there's a word here that shows that the Gemara has a little bit of a different principle going on here. Or Tosfos will say, this Gemara is dealing in a very specific case. Tosfos looks at the Talmud as a unified book. Rashi does not do that. Rashi looks at the Gemara, each one was written, and therefore when Rashi comments on the Gemara, Rashi's not commenting on it as if it's a unified book, but rather going through the Gemara, Shaktavataya, line by line, and saying, at this place, this Gemara, this is how I'm going to interpret it. Yes, maybe contradicts what's said elsewhere. Tosfos can figure out why that may be. But Rashi, he's always trying to figure out what it is, and also, Rashi... What made him so great was 
he was really, when he went to Germany, one of the things he learned was, he learned from Rabbi uh, Yaakov Yakar, one of the great, one of the great, great early Ashkenazic Rabbanim. So when he writes in each Masech, in each tractate, he's essentially writing what he heard from his Rebbe. And he had different Rebbeim for different chapters, for different tractates. Which is why the, already the, you find the Yachronim saying, when Rashi contradicts himself in different Masechtas, it's not that he's really contradicting himself, he's just saying, this Rebbe taught it this way, this Rebbe taught me this after this way, and I'm just going to transcribe the story I heard. When uh, they say it's a mitzvah kala to Miyashevit, to figure out what's going on there, but Ra Rashi, again, was writing the Gemara, Rashi knew this was true. It's more of Rashi, Rashi interpreted the Gemara this way, whereas others did not do so. But my point is, the force of Rashi's pen, because of his personality, was once Rashi said this, no one really, no one mainstream argued. And again, as always in Judaism, there's always someone who's going to argue, it's always outliers, that's just how we live. Even people who are great Rabbanim will sometimes have a, a we call it a yachid, a sheet that's out there. That's just the way we live in life. But we reject it. We say, you're a great rabbi, but with all due respect, usually when we say with all due respect, we don't much, mean much respect, but we say with all due respect, you know, and it happens the same thing in the world of Machshav and Hashkafa as well. You can always know Mark Shapiro put together a book where he pulled, together, pulled out random shitas and about the 13... The 13 uh, uh, central beliefs. Oh, this rabbi didn't believe in it. But like, that's, the, that's just not the way halakhic process, process works. We can reject the sheet and still embrace the rabbi. Either way. Rashi also, by the way, wrote in the Chumash, as we know. Rashi and the Chumash, they, 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 they say from the Rashbam, Rashi's grants, I never saw it written inside. He said, Rashi and the Gemara had been around long enough, I could have written it. Rashi and the Chumash, I can never have written. It's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful, um, you open it, it's a wonderful parish where he blends together Pshat and Drash. He blends together the pshat, but also the, the simple meaning of the text, but also pulling together all the different midrashim and the Haggad and the Gemara and putting it together. It's interesting, uh, Professor Abraham Grossman, who wrote a very, a very important work on Rashi, he wants to argue that in Rashi's time in France, the Christians were engaged in a very similar interpretation of text. And there always was a debate, do you read the text at face value or do you use more of the drash, even in the Christian world? And some people chose one way, some people chose the other way. And Rashi's time was when they started blending the two. So Rashi came from it. Again, how much you want to ascribe Rashi's influence from what's going on around them, that's up to debate always. That's the perennial debate when it comes to academia. But you also can't deny there's certain cultural, um, cultural undercurrents that affect all of us. That's just the way we think, what we think about, what we talk about. You know, just one example, and then we can end quickly. We can end on that. Rabbi Dr. Slifkin, not Dr. Slifkin, otherwise known as the Zoo Rabbi, so he wrote his, I was, I was in Beit Shemesh the week he got his, his dissertation. Uh, yeah, he defended his dissertation, got his PhD. So first of all, someone walked up to him and goes, Mazel tov, I wish you many, many more. <laughs> so everyone laughed. He goes, you think you're funny. My father too. But um, he wrote his PhD about, ninth, I believe, 18th century, 19th century rabbinic encounters with, encounters with zoology. And what he wanted to show is one of the things that you find in the works of Rabbanim then was trying to figure out exactly how can it be there could be an animal that was extinct. How can an animal go extinct? How can the woolly mammoth go extinct? If God has a shkaf, if God has divine providence and watches over every species, it doesn't make sense that there could be an animal that goes extinct. And they come up with all sorts of answers. He says, if you look in the early writings of what's going on in the church then, so much so he wanted to argue that he found letters, some part of the motivation for sending Lewis and Clark out west was not just to find the Pacific, not just to find trade route and map out the land, was also to find extinct animals. Because what bothered Thomas Jefferson was, how can it be there are animals that are, animals that are extinct if there's a God, a God of divine providence? So again, the, 
there's over always an overlap. The cultural, uh, a cultural, uh, you know, just what's going on in the outside culture, what bothers them is going to bother us. Just think about the issues that we talk about, we deal with. It's the same thing in the second world. It's just part of what it is. Again, how much you want to ascribe? It's up to debate. But that was interesting that Professor Rosen points out. Okay, let's just do the last three sources. Rashi asked the following question. This is the last one on page number one. They asked Rashi. There's a concept called yayin nesech, wine that was poured, libated, the official word, to a, not to a uh, idol. That wine is prohibited. Mito orisa, you can't, not only can you not drink it, you can't have any sort of benefit from it. What about wine that was poured, that, that a non-Jew, so a non, wine a non-Jew, a non-Jew touches, we have a siyag, we have a dirabanan, rabbinic enactment, we also, if non-Jew touches wine that's not bevushal, we also do not, do not drink it. What about if a mummer, someone who apostatized, touches this wine? Well, if you look at them as a non-Jew, so then it's totally out. Says Rashi, So the question is as follows. They asked Rashi, All the people who converted. Now, anus is usually the word anus. Anyone know where the word anus comes from? Ones? Ones? Accident, or in this case, forced. So we're talking about people perhaps who are forced, which is a whole different discussion we're going to get to when we get to more of the Sephardi lands. And again, think about what happened in Spain. There's a lot of literature on that after, and after the Jews were expelled. Do you have to, you have to move away from or not touch the wine of non-Jew? Now, why is this so important? Because wine was not just something they drank on Shabbos. First of all, the water was not something they drank at all in the, in the Middle Ages. They drank beer or they drank wine. It was the staple of what they drank. More than that, that was the main cult, that was the main trade. There are those who want to say Rashi for a business was a, had a vineyard. However, Professor Chaim Salavechik, this is talks about a dedicated historian, he went to Troyes and tested the soils and talked to historians and he concluded the soil of Troyes would not grow grapes properly. And therefore, he said it's all hearsay and not true. That's, that, that's, that's been a real historian. Well, leaving your ivory tower to check out the soils. Either way, but the wine was the staple of their diet. Every, the wine was everywhere. That's what they drank. So the person says as follows. Rashi, Rebbe, do you have to remove yourself from the wine of Nanju? Until you know they do tshuva, they come back, and not just do tshuva and say, I'm, I'm, I'm back, but for many days. And you see it's clear and evident they've really repented. Not They got inspired in NCSY, Shabbaton, they sang a song, they came back, I'm from now. No, no, they're, they're, they're keeping it going. He says, But those who, who show up and say, I'm, I'm religious today, I'm, I'm back. This person says, I looked around, I didn't know, what's the answer? So I'm turning to you. Says Rashi, Says Rashi, Do not do so. Do not so. Because they, they wouldn't even pour their, their wine to Avodazar. Again, here we're dealing with someone who's forced to be convert, converted, so he's assuming they didn't really convert. So when, even when they pour their wine, they're not really doing it for Avodah Zara. And this, that we said, you mentioned, there's a gezera. You can't wine even touched by a non-Jew. We don't drink. He said it's only by a non-Jew. Not by someone who, 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 who sinned. Not by someone who walked away. Yisrael, Avodah Yisrael have it. Once a Jew, always a Jew. The last one is as follows. 
he's uh, last minute we say the outside is he wants to know what about a not when it comes to duchening when it comes to a kohen who got to the duchen there are all sorts of halachas that that around who exactly can duchen so someone wants to know can a someone who who at one point walked away can they come back and convert can they come back and convert sorry can they come back and duchen so Rashi says in the base of Migdash, it's a little more complicated but in the rest of the land. The only people we find who can't can, who can't dochen are people who are going to distract the, the congregation. Back then, people they didn't wear the talis over their hands. Let's say their hands are disformed. It's a concern. People are going to be looking there and not focusing. Those people can't dochen. We don't find anywhere else. Once a Jew, always a Jew. He comes back. He can dochen. Now, I want to conclude with what Professor Canafogel points out. He says as follows: This book came out that two years ago. He's very gracious. I emailed him about the book. He sent me the PDF of it. He says, during the, during the time an apostate lived outside the Jewish community as a Christian. Again, this book is more, mainly dedicated to showing how he had come across, well, his Reb, his, his teacher, Professor uh, Tashima, was one of the great medieval and early, early, uh, I'd say, early modern historians. So he basically did a work that said, Rashi's idea of Yisrael was ubiquitous. Everyone really believed in that. And there was an outlier, he found one document of someone who once said, you want to come back, you have to go to the mikvah, you have to rub sand all over yourself, and really put yourself, show, show your, you know, you're coming back. Professor Cannavogel said, it, after doing a lot of research, so no fault to Professor Tashima, a lot of this stuff was documents and manuscripts he found discovered much later after Tashima passed away, showed how there were these ideas floating around, that's what this book is dedicated to. But he opens up talking about Rashi. During the, during the time an apostate lived outside the Jewish community as a Christian, the members of the Jewish community in good standing were not to consider an apostate or relate to him in either personal or economic matters as a non-Jew. <clears throat> Meaning, you don't relate to him as a non-Jew. You, you don't charge him interest. His wine is okay. Although limitations are placed on certain forms of fraternization, such as partaking from, it, uh, from him, sorry, from food of an apostate. Meaning, makes a lot of sense. Someone walks away. We say, look, you're still a Jew, we love you, but we're not necessarily going to go and hang out with you all the time because it's a bad influence. You're, you're, you're wearing a cross around your neck. We don't want to, but we love you, and when you want to come back, you're more than welcome to come back. And we'll take the cross, and we'll change it, and we'll look like a mug and and all will be well. Thus, in addition to the prohibition against lending it to an apostate or borrowing from him interest, the apostate's betrothal of a Jewish woman, assuming for acquiescence, was fully effective, meaning he's a Jew. At the same time, once an apostate made the decision to return to the practice of Judaism and to the Jewish community, and his commitment to repent became known, I mean, it wasn't just he shows up one day, oh, I'm Jewish, okay, fine, come eat with me. We know, but it's known. Other Jews were permitted to consume his bread and drink his wine. There was no need for a waiting or, pro or, probation, to, uh, or probation period to confirm that his return was undertaken in good faith. It wasn't like, oh, wait two years, come here, wait two years, we'll see. Rashi's ruling in instances such as these were not always novel, but he had two over overarching aims in offering them. First, he wished to dispel the notion that apostasy to Christianity constituted an irrevocable dislocation of the individual from Judaism and the Jewish community. Number one, he wanted to say, once you're Jew, always a Jew, it's not like you can cast it off and walk away, which by the way works both ways. Baptism did not vici vitiate the individual's halachic status as a Jew even in instances where the apostate accepted Christianity willingly. Even when the guy said, Kim of the Kiblu, Nasim, and Nishma, I'm taking on Christianity. Nope, he's still a Jew. Second, Rashi understood that Jewish converts to Christianity during this period often vacillated in their new religious commitment. They weren't always strong. They doubted themselves. 
They did it because perhaps they thought they'd make more money. They did it because they thought they'd get a certain prestige. They did it because they had certain issues. But they vacillated. In accordance with the status of the Mumer and Talmudic parlance, whose rejection of Judaism or Jewish law was perhaps only partial or temporary, and his return to observance was deemed possible, if not imminent. Rashi, those leading halachists and Ashkenaz during the 12th and 13th centuries, who embraces you, wish to encourage and ease the way for the apostate's return. Says Professor Kanafogel, Rashi understood. People who walk away don't always do it with full heart. And even when they do it with full heart, oftentimes they have doubts, and therefore Rashi wants to make it as easy as possible to come back. I think what we see from here is A as follows, that when you, when you read the Gemara, it takes a very strong, it seems like a very strong and stringent and harsh view of those who walk away. And there's a certain, you can understand a little bit, especially Christianity has not always been so good to us. The pagans have not always been so good to us. They, the lives they live are antithetical to, in terms of the, their beliefs are antithetical, some of them, to what we believe. At the same time, Rashi comes along and says, The optimist, a Jew is always a Jew. You can't lose that status. Yes, you can do wrong. Yes, sometimes we treat you a certain way because we have to have either pragmatic concerns about trying to keep the community whole, trying to keep people in line. Yes, we have to do it because we have to make sure people don't perhaps end up slipping or, or sinning. But ultimately, if you want to come back, we welcome you with open arms. And this is going to set the stage. We're going to see it's going to play out a lot. It's going to play out, especially in Spain, during the forced conversions. And we'll see then it's not so posh, it's not so simple that Jews were forcibly converted. One of the people who did a lot of research into this was Benzio Netanyahu, Bibi's father, was one of the, one of the a world-class historian, actually, in, in Spain. And we'll see how it plays out then in, in once the Enlightenment happens, and people start walking away from religion en masse, not for, because they're joining Christianity, but because they had issues with Judaism, or because they, had, they, they saw a certain light in the secular world, the Enlightenment, and what the approach to that, that is. And we'll start to see it again even later in the Chaznish, in the sec- in looking at secular Israelis. And we'll see it again even nowadays with... How going to Russia Weiss and how he views how he views how he views secular Jews nowadays in the world we live in. So with that, I wish you all a wonderful week.